Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us here in New York now, truly two of the leading minds in the field of economics, formerly the chief economist for the OECD and now City's new global chief economist, Catherine Mann. And alongside us, also a man that for Wall Street needs no introduction, it's City's Willem Bauter. So Willem and Catherine, you have to help me out now. Who's in charge? Who makes the call for Payrolls Friday? Is that you, Catherine? <laughs> I, it's, it's above my pay grade. Pay grade. Uh, the payrolls does, are, do, absolutely. Does Willem come in and make a suggestion of what the call should be for payrolls Friday? Do you do the jobs guess over at City still, Willem? I don't get, get anywhere near it. We leave this to the American <laughs> team. <laughs> Tom Keane, did you know it was such a high-profile decision to make the call for payrolls Friday over at City? It, I, I, did, I think Mr. Corbett makes it and knows it in from the place. <laughs> and then it filters happens. down. So this is a great thing. I'm going to let John set us up here as I set up my Bloomberg Terminal. But it is, John, such an honor to have Dr. Mann and Professor Bowder uh, with us. Andrew Pitt, when he made this announcement, said it was about global thinking. Yeah. And that's what you get here. The, other than that, the reason they're here today, folks, is these are the only two people I know with a worse bracket than I had I also think these, these, are, these are two of the only few people that I know that could get you back from spring break. And I think this, it's is, true. Actually, no, this that is, is actually true. why this is why you came back to work. Yeah. I think we throw around this term thought leadership way too much. Exactly. But, I, but I think this yeah. morning that's why what we've Why don't you got. jump in here, John? So, so Catherine, there's a big concern about international trade. There is a hope right. in the last few days that maybe a truce can be found before between the United States and China. Can you just lay out the base case over at City at the moment and some of your insight into how you think this is going to evolve in the coming months and years? So the uh, base case is, is that we're not looking at a macroeconomic effect coming out of this uh, trade skirmishing. Um, and the reason why is is that uh, the pattern that we've observed uh, in these, in these uh, announcements is there's, there's a huge announcement uh, and then there's a backtrack. I mean, let, let's talk about steel and aluminum. Of course, these steel is a is a sector that has had uh, protection um, over the years. A little bit more is like no big deal. Um, but even in this case, after the initial announcement of a big uh, tariff uh, hike on steel and aluminum, there was backtracking of well, uh, you know, the, uh, the NAFTA countries aren't yeah. going to be get one, and Europe isn't going to get the tariff, and so there's all these derogations. So big political gain from the announcement, uh, roll back the economic costs by giving special deals and derogations and so forth. I think that's exactly what we've seen with China: is big announcement, big political gain, but when it comes right down to it. We're, we're, the team there is searching for the least economic cost that you can get out of it. So ultimately, Willem, what's changed? What's changed with this administration's approach to these issues compared to the administrations that have formally tried to tackle the same things over the last few decades? Well, A, the rhetoric has changed, right? It's much more aggressive. Second, there is much greater recourse when there are trade issues to unilateralism rather than multilateralism. I think the unwillingness to fill the vacancies of the dispute resolution judges on the WTO is an yeah. example of that. So I think there is a change in tone, but fortunately uh, not enough uh, change in action to lead us on the path of uh, 
systemically significant, macroeconomically significant trade wars. It's hard, Catherine, to see how they could establish some kind of multilateral approach to all of this when the United States right now doesn't just take issue with China, it also takes issue with the European Union. The United States is also taking issue with with NAFTA partners Mm -hmm. as well. At this point, it feels very much like it's the United States against everybody else. Well, if you think that a trade deficit represents a threat then um, we have pretty much have a trade deficit with everybody. And so you so there is nobody uh, that you're not going to go against. Now, it's a failure to understand the relationship between savings and investment and trade. It's a failure to understand that if you fundamentally are a country that spends more than you earn, then, you know, right. you're going to run a trade deficit. And we're going to be doing it in spades going forward when we add in you know, this fiscal deficit. Let's stop the show here, folks, and talk about the president's certitude to whether you agree or disagree with him, that trade deficits are bad. Professor Bowder, let's begin with you. And long ago and far away, there was a dominant United States with, with Europe flat on its back from World War II, and Asia really not part of the story. And there were surplus and deficit dynamics. Should we fear, Professor Bowder, a trade deficit? No, a trade deficit is simply a reflection of... Uh, uh, domestic production falling short of domestic spending, right? Or you know, in the short run of uh, domestic investment exceeding domestic saving. It is simply a macroeconomic imbalance. And if you don't like it, what you do is things like fiscal tightening, <laughs> not fiscal loosening, which will increase the current account and trade deficits. Right. So it's nothing that cannot be handled with macroeconomic tools. You don't need trade tools. You should not use trade tools to address the trade deficits, and strange though it sounds. With that, within that, that important comment, Dr. Mann, and this goes back to your classic work, is a trade deficit sustainable, is the idea of what Professor Bowder just said, which is if you have fiscal stimulus, by definition, you boost consumption, mm-hmm. which brings imports in, right? Right. That's it's exactly. That's the way it. That's, that's the, the way, way it works. works. I did okay. Yes, you did exactly right. <laughs> a. Then what do, I asked Professor. Well, I don't, don't give me a Farrell gets the A's. I get the. Right. I get the quality C plus, folks. <laughs> Professor Bowder mentioned dollar ambiguity earlier. What is what is Catherine Mann's call of what a dollar does given fiscal stimulus and given new growing imports into the United States? Well, there are a lot of different factors that affect dollar dynamics. And uh, we can say, well, in theory, a trade deficit should put us in a position where the dollar needs to depreciate in order to make U.S. exports more competitive, imports more expensive, and that will shift uh, production and consumption towards the domestic uh, production. However... There is little evidence that that, in fact, bears out in the U.S. experience Mm -hmm. uh, because there are many other factors that drive the dollar. Capital flows, the desire to buy U.S. assets, buy U.S. Treasury securities. If you want to buy U.S. assets, buy U.S. real estate, buy U.S. companies. You have to buy the U.S. dollar in order to do that, and that tends to cause the dollar to appreciate. Can we just wrap up this part of the conversation with you guys by just asking a very basic question and getting some more insight from you, Catherine? A trade deficit's bad. No. Can you walk us through as to why? Because the whole premise of this conversation is that a deficit with another nation is bad. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me why not? 
So a trade deficit is not bad because you're in a position where other people are willing to sell you stuff and you don't actually have to pay for it. And usually we think that that's a pretty good deal, right? We don't, we're not paying, we don't have to pay for it. We're getting, we're getting IOUs or they're, they're taking IOUs from us. Right. And so we're kind of getting something for nothing. And usually that's a pretty good deal. Villain. Does it last forever? No. That's a good right. point. But while it's, you know, it's been going on for, been going on for a while. You know, more than a generation. Willem, do you take that, that side of things as well? No, absolutely. I think the notion that trade deficits are bad is mercantilist nonsense. Right, uh, what it is, they're not indefinitely sustainable. Right, if you are a, a international debtor the way the U.S. is, then on average in the future you're going to have to run trade surpluses. Well, then very quickly, Doctor Mann, is it a mercantile America? Is that where we're heading? Does President Trump <clears throat> represent a mercantile America? Well, his emphasis on exports being good and imports being bad is mercantilist. Okay. Now let's think about it. exports. You produce them. But you can't consume them because you send them to somebody else. How is that okay. a good thing? Let's come back and talk about this. This is just that a is good a good thing. Is this that they're good, staying with Are us. It's okay? a good thing they're staying with yes. us for the next three hours. You, you get an A star this morning, Tom Keane, Willem Bauter, City Special Economic Advisor, alongside Catherine Mann, City Global Chief Economist. You're listening to Bloomberg Surveillance. Let's bring in our guest, shall we? Eric Schoenstein, the Jensen Investment Management Portfolio Manager. I'm very pleased to say, joined us in New York. He's uh, been shaking his head at Tom and I for the last five minutes. Eric, it's great to have you with us in the studio. Thank, Thank you, you very much for joining us. Yeah. What has changed in the last couple of weeks? Why are we seeing such wild swings in equity markets? Well, I think for the first time in quite some time, you've, you actually have things that are different from the standpoint of you know concerns around rising rate environments, Certainly the tariff actions that have taken place, even going back to last year's trade legislation or a tax legislation that was signed late in the year, there's just a number of moving parts that we haven't had for quite some time. I mean, if you think about the last couple of years, we've been pretty complacent as yeah. a market. Uh, they has led to generally pretty benign concerns on the parts of market investors. And now for the first time, you actually have some decisions to make. And really some, uh, some concerns that uh, people are thinking about in terms of some of those challenges and what that could mean. Why are we struggling a month later to still clear the volatility shock of a month ago? It's pretty clear to me that we still haven't shaken out of that. The VIX is still north of 20. And if you look at the volatility of volatility, so to speak, the VVIX, that's still elevated as well. And I think we're really struggling to find, yes, we're in a higher volatility regime, but, but where? Is it north of 20? Is it north of 15? Where is it? Well, I think for us, you know, when we think about looking at businesses that we want to invest in, we only invest in 27 stocks in our in our strategy, yeah. and, we, and we really are very focused fundamentally. But I think one of the things about volatility is volatility in some respects is created by a lack of transparency. And when we listen to what's been coming out of our companies, for instance, the most recent earnings season that's just now winding down or has pretty much wound down, you were not hearing a lot of certainty on the parts of the businesses, even from the standpoint of the, say, what would be favorable tax opportunities because of more control over their free cash flow. You weren't hearing rising wage increases for their employees. You weren't hearing major CapEx spending or R&D spending. You were still hearing pretty much a lot of uncertainty in those companies 
And I think that translates into a lot of what we've seen in the markets the last couple of weeks. Are you advantaged enjoying the urban climbs of Portland, Oregon? Do you get to hide there and not pick up the Wall Street zeitgeist? It's got to be a huge benefit. I, I actually like to think that it is a benefit. Yeah. It's it's uh, we've always talked about it as being away from the noise, if you will. We're we're why out is he looking at me when quiet, he says? Yeah, he didn't uh, look at me. Just for the record, <laughs> out in quiet Portland, Oregon, just keeping our heads down and looking at fundamentals. And so, looking what did at you businesses. do with GE? Because first of all, folks, a Jensen note on their disclosure of what they are doing is first rate. It is world class research note explaining what their portfolios do, and part of it is your sell exercise. Walk us through what you did in Portland, Oregon with Generous Electric. We sold it when it broke our return on equity standard. So the, right. the number one thing we have. ROE. Exactly. And that that's important because it, it indicates that the business return that they're generating consistently above cost of capital right. is consistent <clears throat> enough that they are able to withstand shocks. And in GE's case, they were not able to withstand the shock of what happened with the subprime crisis in GE capital. And then within that is exercise of moving from email to Flannery. I don't care if you buy, hold, sell GE right now, but can a CEO and a management turn around that shareholder equity challenge? Well, in our case, they haven't turned it around yet. GE actually isn't even eligible within our investable universe because since the subprime crisis and since everything that went on with GE Capital, they haven't actually returned to a consistent high business return mm -hmm. above cost of capital. So for in our case, it's a pretty simple, we can't even look at it. Then how does a guy like you with that conservative mentality own something with a price to sales of Apple? Well, because in Apple's case, for us, it's about the uh, it's really about the uh, all the free cash that they have in. And frankly, when you look at it on a valuation basis relative to what's out there, we don't think that it's actually that high in terms of the uh, in terms of the underlying price. When you look at other metrics, price to cash flow, uh, just the general revenue growth that they've got, the services growth mm -hmm. that we think is really going to be part of what makes that company special going forward. What is quality growth? Can you sort of define that for us, what you consider to be quality growth? Quality growth is competitive advantages that are durable or sustainable. Strong management teams that understand with all of the free cash flow they have at their disposal, they're going to continue to reinvest it in a number of different opportunities to generate those business returns into the future. And they have a, a, a level of consistency that allows them to, from a quality aspect, offset or mitigate the business risk of investing in that business. That's why we want to see it as quality. Are there secular growth factors within that that sort of insulate you from, from what you would call the noise of the last two weeks? Yeah, there's things that, I mean, part of what insulates us is that, or insulates these businesses is the high level of free cash flow that they generate is, is so high that organic growth or acquisition growth or share buybacks or dividends, they don't have to make choices. Yeah. We still want them to make the right choices, but they have the luxury of being able to deploy free cash flow towards all those opportunities. How, how important is Time Horizon in these investable opportunities for you guys? Because I, I was having this conversation yesterday that, that basically just said, if you had your money in this market for 
X amount of time, you should ignore everything that's happened in the last two weeks and ignore all the news from here on out through the rest of the year because ultimately the conversation about a prospect for a trade war, great for volatility, but in terms of the fundamentals of some of these companies, are things really going to change? Yeah, that's that's a very important part. Time horizon for us, it really we think about investing for full market cycles where you see what the business can do regardless of what's happening from an economic perspective. That's actually one of the challenges right now is that that full market cycle has been it's mm-hmm. you know the downturn was a long time ago for people to remember what that was like. In the time we got left to you, we want you to come back because I think there's a lot of uh, talk here uh, uh, about the discipline of investing. I want to talk about the future of Portland. Does Portland just get bigger and bigger and bigger, or can they maintain the miracle by managing growth? Boulder, Colorado couldn't do it a bunch of years ago. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. We just had an article locally that we had actually some of our slowest population gains uh, since 2013. We're still growing, but growing a little bit slower. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Portland is a, it's a wonderful place to live. It's a wonderful place to raise a family and a, and a reasonably good business environment. Um, so I think it's it's poised to continue to be a, a pretty special place. Can you um, Can you take Tom with you? To just to Portland for a little bit, just over to. We don't have a hockey team. You don't. That's well, we have a minor league hockey is that, team. Is that but a deal breaker? Be, but is, they'll is, be is, at is the it, World Cup. <laughs> 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 it's not in this go. Eric Schoenstein, the Jensen Investment Management Portfolio Manager. Great to have you with us. It is a great joy to explain to you why you should be on Twitter. If you have any interest in economics, finance, investment, international relations, or politics, you need to go on Twitter for only one reason. At the stalwart is the most interesting eclectic feed of stuff in the studio with us now. is Joe Weisenthal, who out at at the stalwart has reinvented a lot of business uh, journalism and business economics. He is the host of What You Missed. What time is that on, Bloomberg? I'm usually having the surveillance nap when you're on. Your siesta. Uh, from 3.30 Eastern to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday, yeah. five days a week. Why are we having such volatility? Are they down 1,200 points, up 700 points. What's the why? You know, my favorite theory is essentially that it has to do with the rise in rates, the normalization, this idea that, and not actually so much the rise in rates per se, but more the wind down of the Fed's balance sheet, that essentially when the Fed took so many assets out of the market, essentially sucked volatility out of the market, and that the return of those assets, particularly mortgage-backed securities, into the market has reintroduced a level yeah. of volatility. There's probably lots of explanations, but I find that one to be sort of intuitive and it feels right. You and I could talk for four hours about, you know, 27 things, but going through your Twitter feed, yeah. you have, as you always do, killer charts, which then folks I steal and call my own. <laughs> one of them is finally yields compete yeah. with dividends. That's a great wisdom this chart is, from Bloomberg. This is really, I would say, becoming the dominant story in investing and portfolio decisions right now, which is that for the first time since the crisis, you can actually earn a little bit by taking on zero risk. You can you, you don't earn much. It's not like you can make a ton of money buying two-year yields or three-month 
bills or whatever it is, but it's something and that's different from nothing. And so before you were losing money essentially because you were getting eaten up by inflation, that's not the case anymore. And so all other investments, mm -hmm. high dividend stocks, high yield bonds, right. regular equities, now at least at the margins, have to compete with the, uh, the risk-free rate. Karen Moscow had the Bitcoin quote, you synthesize a lot of the, what frankly, folks, I think is a fair complete discussion at Bloomberg about crypto and yeah. about Bitcoin. All I know is a chart looks terrible. It's, it's the one is there the a target for that chart? I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a, you, you, you and I are not in the game of predicting this stuff, but we can both state it looks it's an like, ugly chart. It looks like death is uh, yeah. to put it. Kind of, and it, it smell it probably smells like death if you could uh, smell it as well. No, I mean, it's is just it governments intruding. No, I don't think that's it. I think, look, it is remarkable. The day that Bitcoin peaked, I think it was in early December, was literally the day that the CME futures debuted. Yeah. There's something just completely beautiful about this thing, which emerged in sort of the deep recesses of the internet, counterculture, finally making yeah. its peak the moment it got its true embrace from the institutional side. I don't know if that'll be its ultimate peak, but there is something uh, some, almost poetic about it. You invented a huge part of modern business journalism. You said headlines are boring. When you're over at Business Insider with Mr. Yeah. Blodgett, you said, we're going to make headlines that come out of the screen and we're going to have a short, sharp, cogent article behind it with yeah. selected bullet points and that. Everybody's gone that way. Right. Are we now too sharp and cogent? Have we gone <laughs> too far towards Weisenthal journalism? You know what I would say is that it's not that there is... I mean, I would say at times uh, the media can go too far in one direction. I've always likened the media in the digital environment to uh, the hedge fund business in the sense that strategies only work so long before they become commoditized and everyone well, can do that. That's, that's a great theory of John Templeton's. Yeah, the, John then, believed that. Then firmly. the alpha disappears. So at one point, maybe you gained edge with really aggressive headlines. Then everyone <clears throat> does really aggressive, sharp headlines. And suddenly all those headlines just become like noise and you can't pay attention to them. You have to find something new. But I guess that also implies we're never going to get to some stable equilibrium where we're like, OK, this is what media should look like. And there will always be this sort of cat and mouse game of figuring out a new strategy to get attention in this world where lots everyone is trying to grab your attention. Then everyone figures it out and then you have to find something new. Back to the markets. Yeah. Oil. John Farrell just had a great interview with Aramco on this deal they're trying to bring forward. Oil has got a lift to it, but like a lot yeah. of other things we look at, technically, it's range-bound. A lot of things this morning are at the edge of the range, right? but still it's home on the range. We're, we're all within the range. What are the catalysts you're looking at where we could break out on whatever the issue is to a higher level? Well, I do think it is interesting that oil is basically at multi-year highs right now. At the end of last week, when we got that really intense selling in equities and risk assets, oil held up fine, yeah. which was pretty uh, impressive and I think probably a bit surprising. I mean, obviously, the story that everyone is still focusing in on is U.S. supply and U.S. inventories. And I don't see another obvious mm -hmm. story out there in terms of what is going to be the marginal determinant of the price of a barrel of oil. It still seems like it's the U.S. story. But you know, as long as the world is growing well and nobody is right. rolling over, it seems like there's a bit under oil. It's pretty impressive. From all of your reading and literature, 
we, we become numb to double-digit years in equities. Yeah. It just seems like it's been a trend. And you and I know the math of reversion to the mean and swinging down under you know low single-digit returns. Well, you know what? We've made it through another three months of 2018. And yeah, it's been a little volatile recently, right. but I believe we're up 11 or 17%, whatever the number is, 12 months trailing. <laughs> yeah, It's a double-digit 12 months trailing. We did get uh, sort of uh, spoiled, didn't we, in 2017, and especially January 2018, which was probably beyond spoiled in the sense that it was just so intensely up every day. And so, yeah, we've obviously had a pickup of volatility, but even look at the stocks that have really gotten hammered. And so obviously Facebook in the last two weeks has had a terrible month or terrible few weeks. It's only back to levels that exactly. it saw last summer. And yeah. that's not that bad. I mean, that is very normal for any stock. If you say, okay, it's March of 2018. Now the stock is at June or July 2017 levels. That's not a very big deal typically for any yeah. stock. And yet this is what is coming off a brutal week. And so it kind of puts it into perspective. 12-month total return on Facebook up 14%. Yeah, I'll You're take enjoying it. a 23-ish multiple with no dividend. Yeah, I'll I take mean, it. That's right. this market, isn't yeah. it? And I think, yeah, exactly right. And I think that you know right. the business models of these tech giants are such that as they get bigger, they get stronger, and so right. there's sort of feed, the network effects they feed on themselves. Yeah. But the risk is situations like this: lots of headline risk, right. regulatory risk, right. societal backlash risk, and so right. that's what you sort of that's the price you pay you know, for that outperformance. Joe, I, I look around the room, John Tucker and I. John, we have no social life, do we? I mean, you know, let's be hey, honest. Speak for yourself, all right? Okay. Don't how's drag Biscuit? Me into this. How's the dog? How's the beast? <laughs> Biscuit's good. <laughs> Yeah, we're, yeah, we're doing fine too. Joe Weisenthal has a real social life. Is so, I mean, you are the star of South daughter. by. Okay, you, have, you go to South by Southwest every no, year. I haven't been there in two, since two thousand seven. Okay, so. well that's like last year for us. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> South by Southwest is gone. I mean, you're the Texas guy, and it's like old oh, yeah. news, isn't it? Well, it's funny because so I said the last time I was there is two thousand when it was real. No, even at, that's the funny thing. At that point. I remember saying, oh, this has just gotten completely ridiculous because I had also been there five years earlier, four mm -hmm. years earlier. No, five years earlier. So so by 2007, I was like, oh, this is just ridiculous. It's completely corporate. And now I see dispatches from there on Twitter in every large brand. What Ray Dalio is there. So by the time you have hedge funds <laughs> showing up at South by Southwest, I think we can say... It's a change just a so, little bit. So, so Benson from Asleep at the Wheel is going to talk to Ray Dalio now, about well, well, you and I would love that conversation. That would be a great conversation, wouldn't it? That would be a very good – this was a good conversation too. Rarely with us because he darkens the door in the vicinity of 10, 15 a.m. every day. Joe Weisenthal mm -hmm. with us. And, of course, what would you miss uh, among any number of projects for uh, Bloomberg – This is an exceptionally timely interview. I'm thrilled to say uh, with Professor Bowder and Dr. Mann with us earlier today from Citigroup. Uh, forget about it. This is the interview of the day. Glenn Hubbard is at Columbia Business School. He has been a conservative voice in economics. And I heard the hesitancy in his voice as we went through um, some of the newer conservative economics, particularly seen within the Trump administration. Dean Hubbard, of course, at Columbia uh, Business School, and he joins us today. Uh, Glenn, I spoke to Dr. Navarro yesterday, and I tried to behave myself, but I'll be honest, Glenn. 
it got a little heated. At one point, I said, look, there's John B. Taylor at Stanford. There's Paul Krugman at Princeton, and they both agree they don't agree with Navarro economics. You're on his team somewhat. Where is Navarro, where is Ross Navarro economics flawed? Well, I would start uh, with the problem and then the solution. So on the problem front, I think President Trump's got it right that China is a global trading problem in intellectual property okay. and overcapacity. So I don't disagree on the diagnosis. The solution is where I part company. So what would be needed to address China would be multilateral, not unilateral action, and support for workers here in the United States. Unfortunately, that's not the advice the president's been given. The common feature here, folks, of that phrase, going to Brad DeLong at Berkeley or Danny Roderick and Glenn Hubbard, is support for workers. Dr. Hubbard, is that where we blew it? I mean, in Florida, where you grew up as a kid, we didn't we didn't help the workers in Florida crushed by globalization. Is is that really what happened? Well, I think it's globalization and domestic forces. The biggest forces are actually technological change, not globalization. We need to help people compete in the modern economy, and that's probably going to mean supporting work more than we do. We have an earned income tax credit. We could use that and make it larger, especially for single workers. We could use wage supports. But if we really want to make people support technological change and globalization, we have to help them, and we're not. And Lisa Bramitz, I can't convey enough how this is a common theme through surveillance interviews. Phil Verliger, who was involved in the NAFTA discussions decades ago, is adamant Phil Verliger got it wrong. Lisa? Well, Glenn, uh, Dr. Hubbard, I'd love to get your sense. You said it's important that we support work. How do Trump's policies with respect to health care and with respect uh, to reducing some of the safety blankets play into supporting work? Well, I think you have to be careful there. It is possible that uh, adjusting the safety net to be more work-oriented is actually pro-work. You just have to follow it up with more direct support. It's fine to say, let's make benefits more conditional on work, right. but then you got to help people find that work, and you need to support work. I think as a, as a society, we should want people in the labor force. This has been a big issue for the Fed as well as for the government, right. and we need to do a better job. I think those are the Trump voters, and we're not really addressing their problem. Okay. Are we addressing the problem with cutting taxes? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that it is still true that a growing economy is the best tonic of all. So yes, in that sense. But no, in the more direct sense of really helping people get on the ladder of work who are struggling. So I don't see it as an either or, but a both and. Well, except that we are increasing the deficit by about one and a half trillion dollars over the next decade, which is according to a number of projections. Doesn't that leave us less ammunition to kind of help support work in other ways? I don't think so. We spend a lot of money on other ways of supporting work, variations of unemployment insurance and training programs and other things. We can take some of this money and support work more directly. So I, I don't think that's really an issue. I think it's a lack of attention, to be honest. Neither party has focused on it. Help me with a supply side idea that we hear from Mr. Cudlow and, and others that we can just grow our way out of this problem. The IS curve is slamming to the right. 
We've got a big tax cut. We've got um, the fiscal discussion that Lisa talks about here. Dean Hubbard, is this just all short-termism of a national extent, and we're going to enjoy sub-2% GDP somewhere out there? Well, I don't think so. I, I think that there is a short-term demand effect of the tax cut. That's the deficit effect that came up earlier. The longer-term effects of the tax uh, reform bill are largely more on the supply side. But I think it doesn't really, all of that, while I agree with everything, doesn't really get to the point of low-wage work. I think that requires right. more direct intervention, and nobody in the White House seems to be talking is about Is there it. anybody within the Republican Party that can actually affect what should have been done decades ago? Well, Paul Ryan uh, has written quite a bit on this, and the Ways and Means Committee has done a lot of good work. This isn't something that's a radical idea on on either side of the aisle. We should be able to do this. Dean Hubbard with us, Glenn Hubbard, the Columbia Business School. Too much to talk about here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.